Good morning. I see the word got out. Jonathan's up this week. And if you're listening to this on podcast or something like that, it's because there's not very many people here. That was why I was making that joke. Um, We also don't have a reader. She left too. She was like, man, he's up. She saw this worship folder. She said, I'm not reading all that. Um, (laughs) That's a joke too. But in your worship folder, you will see lots of words, okay? Um, Because we are going to survey our way through the story of Joseph this morning. Uh, And in all seriousness, Susan Fleming, who's been reading for us, uh, I believe I got a chance to take a trip to Israel, uh, and so she's on her way there. So pray for her. I'm sure she's excited. Uh, But I'm going to be reading in her place this morning uh, four scenes or four uh, mini stories out of the greater story of Joseph. So this is God's word. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until it ceased, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors 
So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Lastly, from chapter 50, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so today uh, we are finishing up uh, a, a section of a larger series on the entire Old Testament that we had started back in September. We looked at the beginnings in the book of Genesis, and for the last several weeks we've been working through the immediate aftermath of God's promise in Genesis 3, verse 15, his commitment to carry out his purposes to redeem and restore and crush the head of evil. And the way he does that, as we've seen again and again, is through calling out Abraham and his family and promising to bless them and send them to be a blessing. And so the story, as well as the mission of God, ebbs and flows through the obedience and the disobedience of the family of Abraham. Now, incidentally, let me say, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're relatively new to the Bible, uh, one of the things that has been amazing about this story and continues to be is that these characters are massively flawed Um, because they're real people, that is. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat sin. It doesn't airbrush over the character's brokenness. The Bible is written with reality in view, and it doesn't apologize for its presentation. And that's what makes it different from every other holy book in the world. It's what makes it different from Greek and Roman mythology. It's real. Now, today is the last Sunday before the season of Advent begins. You'll see a a different table runner up here next week. There'll be uh, an Advent wreath, and and the whole whole scene will change. And we're going to be carrying on our study of the Old Testament into the Exodus story. But first, today, we're going to take a look at Joseph. This is the third major section of the book of Genesis, and it sets the stage for what follows with uh, Exodus Remember, the original audience of this book was the nation of Israel. As they're on the plains of Moab, as they're preparing to cross over into the promised land. Now, I'm excited this morning because it's not every day you get to preach on 13 chapters. I was hoping more people would get that. Now, 13 chapters. The section of Genesis that Joseph, the Joseph story covers is from 37 to 50. So I promise you this morning, this is not going to be like one of my prayers, only in sermon form. Uh, We'll get through it. We won't be here all day. However, I would encourage you, uh, sometime today, preferably, because it will be fresh on your mind, sit down, if you get a chance, and read from chapter 37 to 50. It takes about 40 minutes, okay? But read the story all the way through. Uh, You'll be glad you did, I promise. So in the worship folder, what you're going to see there, as I just read, are four stories, and I tried to pick out some of the critical moments 
that we're going to use to guide us. And then on the opposite page, you'll see the outline, okay? So first, and this will be the shortest point, is why is the story of Joseph so powerful? Why is it so striking? Okay? And then the longer points will be the second and the third. The second is that God is fairly hidden in the story of Joseph, okay? Uh, in the first 11 chapters, he appears, he, he, he has what uh, Bible scholars call theophanies, which is where there's some representation of him or some appearance of him to the people that he's communicating with. In 12, chapter 12 through chapter 35, it's a lot of visions and dreams. But in 37 to 50, he's fairly hidden. People talk about him. But he doesn't talk. So in the midst of that, how do you find Joseph dealing with that and making sense out of the events of his life? And how does that help us to make sense out of the events of our life, particularly when they don't make sense? And then finally, from fear to faith, how do you become the kind of person who can endure, who can remain faithful when life gets confusing and chaotic? So Joseph's story, Joseph's God, Joseph's faith first. Joseph's story. I want to go back here because the Bible is an amazing piece of literature. I've already alluded to this, but it really is. If you've never sat and read through this story, any other portion of the Old Testament, particularly the narrative portions, I'd really encourage you to do so because it's marvelous literature. It's the best literature ever written, I would argue. But here's what's hard. When you read a novel or some work of literature like Genesis and the narrator isn't a character, you as a reader, you learn all kinds of things, and you know things that the characters don't know. Because as English teachers will tell you, this is written from the third-person omniscient uh, perspective. It's not written from I or you, uh, but the narrator is this omniscient third person who knows all this stuff. But the characters don't. And so as a result, sometimes it's difficult to immerse yourself in the story, to feel what the characters feel, and to experience life through the characters' eyes. But you've got to do that here. It's particularly poignant if you try to do that in the story of Joseph. Because here you've got hatred, jealousy, violence, favoritism, division, immaturity. And remember, this is God's chosen family. Okay, so if you've never read the book of Joseph... Uh, maybe, you know, what I read there in 37 today was the first time you've ever read that. So as you're introduced to this guy, he's a 17-year-old spoiled brat who tattles on his brothers and brags about his dreams. And you've got a father who favors him so much that he doesn't make it secret. He makes it so obvious. He weaves this beautiful Roy G. Biv robe for him, okay, gives it to him. And as a result, his brothers hate him. Look at how many times the writer says in Genesis 37, his brothers hated him. They hated him. They hated him even more. His brothers hated him, and they were jealous of him. Are you serious? This is the family of God, right? They hate him so much, they conspire to kill him later in chapter 37. And I was reminded reading this the other day of that old hymn that uh, used to sing at my friend's church when I would go visit it at the greeting time. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is the family of God. Joseph clearly was a stellar parent. Excuse me, Jacob, that is. Stellar parent. Should have written a book on parenting. Obviously, I'm joking. If you think our church is dysfunctional, you ought to try churching with this family, right? 
They're nuts. They're crazy. This is brokenness all over the place. It's better than a soap opera. But as you read on, what you see is a transformation that occurs in Joseph. He's developing character, integrity, courage. Later, he resists sexual temptation. He uses his gift of interpreting dreams to be a blessing to his fellow prisoners. And 13 years later, he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. That's the passage, the second paragraph there. He oversees a grain storage project for the entire nation. He's prudent and he's just. And he governs and uses his power in a, in a, a righteous and just way. And when he reveals himself to his brothers, he's no longer a 17-year-old punk. He's an emotional wreck because he can't hide his love for his family. His love for them prevents any vengeance or bitterness or anger toward him. And part of the power of the Joseph story is in God's invisibility. I already mentioned this, but I want to mention it again. The characters talk about him. The narrator describes him, but he's not visible or audible. And I think that makes the story that much more real. That's how real life works, right? In the course of ordinary mundane living, I don't know about your week this last week, but in my week, God did not appear to me in a vision, and I'm trying to put a sermon together for crying out loud. It would have been really helpful but he doesn't appear to you in visions on a regular basis. And I haven't been wrestled to the ground in the middle of the night lately by God. Have you? I mean, you know, this is real. That's how life really works. Again, put yourself in the middle of the story from chapters 37 to 50. This is where Joseph's story begins to bear real application to us. Look at the second point here. I want to talk to you up for a few minutes about how providence is a mystery to us more often than not. We've sung about it in a number of different ways this morning. Up to this point in Genesis, God has done a lot of talking. He's done a lot of interacting. He's front and center, visions, dreams, appearances. He says what he thinks. He says what he feels, and so you know it. But in chapter 37, all the way to the end, he's backstage. There are no recorded words of God for the rest of the book. Okay? For example, the dream of Joseph in chapter 37 is the first dream recorded in the Bible where God doesn't speak. And Bible scholars use this word called providence to describe the feature of God's character that you see in these chapters. And the root of the word providence is very interesting. It's the word provision or to provide, right? Um. When we use the word, we're not talking about chance or blind luck or something impersonal. Quite the opposite. A definition that I want to use comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 27, uh, which the question is, what is the providence of God? And I want to read this to you. Listen very carefully to this definition. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures. And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Now, if you're a Christian, this is teaching something critically important and diametrically opposed to what much of evangelical churches are teaching people today. Everything 
okay? Everything. Not just good things, not just so-called blessings, but everything comes from the hand of God himself. And if you don't consider yourself a Christian, in no way, shape, or form are we saying that because of this, or somehow out of this, is the idea that God is capricious and willy-nilly, or he's some sort of absentee landlord. Providence doesn't lead you to that, because foundational to the idea or the doctrine of providence is these words, fatherly care. God is a father, and he cares, and his hand is over and in and under everything. It is the almighty and ever-present power of God. John Newton said it this way, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Spoken by a man who became blind by the end of his life. So obviously, Lord, I didn't need my sight. I mean, what a posture of faith. Now, two examples of how Joseph senses God's providence, how we see it how we see him reacting to it from his life. First is, uh, in the second paragraph, you'll see there where he names his children. And we get a glimpse of his trust and sense of God's providence, as well as a confirmation that his faith was in the Lord. In other words, he hadn't become an Egyptian. Even though he's in the service of Pharaoh, he has an Egyptian priestess for a wife. What does he do? He names his children Hebrew names. Don't miss that. He draws attention to God and his work and his blessing. He remembers who he is. And Ephraim's name is particularly striking. Because what he's saying is God has borne fruit for, what Joseph is saying is God has borne fruit for him and literally out of him in the place of affliction. And you may be in a place of affliction right now. You may have walked in here this morning, your mind full of all these things in your life where you feel afflicted or you wonder what is going on. It's hard to even think there may be fruit in the place of affliction. More often than not, when when that happens to me, when I'm a place or in a period of affliction, all I can think about is the affliction. All that occupies my mind is the affliction. Fruit is the last thing that I'm ever thinking about. But Joseph manages to honor the Lord in this situation by the names he gives his children and what those names mean. But not only that, look at the third paragraph uh, in your worship folder. From chapter 45, verses 4 to 8, Joseph gives this speech the first time he unveils who he is to his brothers and is absolutely astounding what he says. In in, In four verses, Joseph says, God sent me three times. So get this, God, excuse me, Joseph is saying, God sent me to prison, God sold me into slavery, God put me in Potiphar's house where I was falsely accused. Do you hear that? That wasn't chance, that wasn't me running, that wasn't uh, due to, you know, anything else than God sent me. Now for what purpose? Look at verse 7 in the, uh, the third paragraph there, all the way, almost to the bottom. Joseph says, God sent 
me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph understood something of God's providence that I think we often miss. What we tend to do is often only think of providence in terms of what is God doing in my life right now for me, right? Rather than what God could be doing in my life for you or for others. Remember, this is Abraham's family through which God said all the families of the earth would find blessing. And here's what is astounding. If Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery, if Joseph hadn't gone to prison, if Joseph hadn't gone to Potiphar's, uh, into Potiphar's house and be falsely accused, lives would have been lost and a remnant of Israel would have been destroyed. That's what he's saying. So what do you do when you can only see a minuscule fraction of what God is doing in your life and that tiny bit doesn't make any sense? I love this quote. It's a statement that John Piper, who's a pastor up in Minnesota or was a pastor, is retired now, said it this way. And he, he said it in a blog at the beginning of 2012 and then he repeated it at the beginning of 2013. Um, he said this, God is always doing 10,000 different things in your life and you may only be aware of three of them. And I thought to myself, gosh, isn't that so true? And that puts some perspective on it because you and I can't wrap our minds around 10,000 things, but we might only be able to see three. Where is God's providence most mysterious in your life? Again, back to the definition, the ironic thing is for most of us, we answer according to what he hasn't provided, what he's not given provision for rather than what he has. So let me ask it this way, where or what has he provided that's most difficult to understand? What provision has he made that doesn't make sense? What if his provision is chronically ill, aging parents, a life of singleness, and a $10 an hour job? What if it's a severely autistic child, a divorced brother who needs a place to live, and a boss you can't please? The question is, as you're, as you're in the middle of that, the question is not, where is God? The question is, what is God doing? What is he up to? Uh, an old hymn, one of the verses which we'll sing later, as a matter of fact, says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So I want to tell you just a little bit of the story of God's providence in my life. This will not take long, I promise. I've given you the highlights. But in late high school, I decided I was going to pursue a degree in medicine, and I had a goal of going into medical missions. The world and other cultures and places had always fascinated me, so surely God's calling me into that life, right? I start college, and I was going along until I took organic chemistry. Those of you students who are thinking about going into chemistry or medicine, don't. Some of you are smart enough to take and pass organic chemistry, or else you wouldn't be physicians and other things. But uh, you have to take it. The first class, that was the first thing that I had ever failed at in my entire life. Now, thankfully, thankfully, the school let me withdraw. So there was no evidence of having failed. Right? Now, what was God doing? Well, 
he provided me a great friend and roommate who suggested, maybe you should change your major, which I did. I graduated. I went into a master's program. I had married Jamie by this point, and we were both excited about a life in international missions. Ooh, international missions. So we raised money. We packed up. We got trained, prodded, poked, passed inspection, and moved abroad. Now, under a year later, we were back here. It hadn't worked out. This time, though, there was no withdrawing. Okay? This failure was etched in stone on the transcript of my life. Everybody could see it. Everybody knew about it. You know, it's one thing to not be able to go to the Florida State game, which we didn't get a chance to go to yesterday because, you know, God had other plans. But it's quite another to show up back at your home church. Didn't you move, like, way over there? Why are you back here? Now, where was God? What was he thinking? Why in the world would he allow this to happen? Well, what little of his providence I could see made absolutely no sense. Now, here's the thing. That was almost a decade ago. That was almost a decade ago. And while some of it still doesn't make sense to me, I understand more now, and I feel a little bit more like Joseph in chapter 45, and I can say with him, God sent me there. I don't know why yet. I know a little bit more of why 10 years on. Maybe 10 years from now I'll know a little bit more. But here's what I do know. God sent me there for what? To save me and my family from an idolatry that I now believe would have killed me. He provided a hard experience to preserve my life. Behind the frowning providence was a smiling face. I didn't see it. I didn't understand it. But I'm beginning to understand it now. In fact, if you'd have told me all that would happen 10 or 15 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. Joseph doesn't see his brothers for 15 or so years, and then he comes to see how God was working all along. There's no indication in the story that he knew or understood as he sat in the prison of Pharaoh or was in the pit and got sold as a slave to the Ishmaelites. But here's the difference, and it's why we marvel at Joseph, and it's what brings us to the third point. Faith trusts in the providence of God. It embraces it as from the Father's hand. It's able to see beyond itself. But on the other hand, fear. Fear works to fight against God's providence. It refuses to accept it. It focuses on itself. So how do you get from fear to faith? Where does the ability to embrace these mysterious moves of God come from? Well, I want you to look at the last passage printed in the worship folder from Genesis 50. And I want to zero in on Joseph's brothers. And then I want to zero in on Joseph's words to them. So first, his brothers. The way his brothers approach him says a lot about their understanding of forgiveness. In verse 15, they fear their brother's revenge. Eye for eye, skin for skin. This is the ancient world. We did evil to him. We better prepare for the fact he's going to do evil back to us. And so in verse 18, they offer themselves to Joseph as slaves. We'll pay you back by slaving for you. Just please don't kill us. There's no place, no place in their world or their understanding of relationships for grace, unconditional grace. 
forgiveness that absorbs the wrong done to it. Their sin in their minds is unforgivable. There's no way Joseph could ever get past it. And they're scared to death that that is indeed the case. The problem is, that's the posture most of us take toward God. Most religions, most people in fact, approach God thinking, my sin is unforgivable. He could never forgive me. I've been too bad, too terrible, too wicked. And more than that, he's on a mission to pay me back. So because we're riddled with fear, we work to pay him back. Try to be good, try to be moral, try to be nice. But when we mess up or life doesn't make sense or work out, the fear resurfaces and we think, yep, he's punishing me, he's getting me back, paying me back for all my bad behavior. But let me say this, to be a Christian is to say to God, I can't pay you back. There's nothing I can offer to make up for how wicked and corrupt I am. And when you come to God like that, when that is your posture, his response is, look at verse 19. Do not fear. From the Jesus Storybook Bible, which, man, that insert in your worship folder, if you have kids, do it for sure. But if you don't have kids, go buy a little children's Bible and read it. Um, Uh, every day of the month of December. It is so profound. The Jesus Storybook Bible says, Joseph threw his arms around them. Don't be afraid, he said. Behind what you were doing, underneath everything that was happening, God was doing something good. God was making everything right again. And it's the power behind these words. Many of you have probably heard what so-and-so meant for evil, God meant for good. This quote from Joseph from Genesis 50, it's, it's kind of made its way around the church, at least as a, as, a, as a little saying that we often throw out. But the power behind the words of Joseph is that they point us to another young prince, one who would one day be hated by his brothers, betrayed, sold for silver, who would leave his home and his father and who would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. And of course, that is... Jesus Christ, who says, my imprisonment, my suffering, my affliction, my betrayal, God the Father meant for good to bring it about that many should be made alive. Jesus says, you can't make a payment great enough to secure forgiveness from God, but when you have faith in me and the payment I made with my life and my death, it will ensure forgiveness and it will destroy your fear. He can bring good out of even death. And if he can do that, I mean, can't you trust him? Wouldn't it follow that he's good, that he has your best interests at heart? As Paul says in Romans 8, everything works for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He is working those things out. Even in the death of his one and only son, he was working good. Through evil. No power in the universe can stop his will. From him, to him, and through him is everything. Amen, as we've already sung. The pilgrimage of Joseph from slave to vice regent parallels the journey of Israel. As those who escaped from Egypt to the nation all the way under Solomon when they would experience great uh, blessing and flourishing... 
it, it parallels the life of David from shepherd's helper to king, and it parallels the story of Jesus Christ from manger to the right hand of God. The presence of God brings life in the place of death, honor instead of humiliation, and fertility over sterility. Here's the statement. The story depends not on the prowess of the people, but on the presence of God, Emmanuel. Now think about the nation of Israel in the plains of Moab. They're listening to this story. What do they need to hear? Okay, this is a small ragtag group of slaves facing down a foreign land and mighty armies, well-built cities, unknown terrain. What, what do they need to hear? The Lord is with you as he was with Joseph. He was with Joseph in the pit, in the prison, in the palace, everywhere. The Lord is faithful. He's always working. His plans and his purposes can't be thwarted. They can't be stopped. The Lord can be trusted. Look at how he kept his word to his people all these years. What are you facing? What plains of Moab are you standing on? As you're overlooking or preparing for a task, that, or, or maybe you're in the middle of a task that seems daunting and impossible, listen to this statement. It was faith that gave Joseph the ability to reinterpret the barbaric acts of his brothers that that were inflicted upon him as God's good design to save them through him. It was faith. And the message to us is no different. Except we get the benefit of seeing and knowing God's ultimate and final promise of his presence. We get the benefit of being on the other side of Emmanuel having come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so as you begin to prepare for Advent, the celebration that is coming should renew our, our, our strength and cripple our fear. And whether you're in the midst of a time in your life that doesn't make sense or everything feels like it's going pretty well on the whole or maybe somewhere in between, I want to leave you with question number 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Because it it takes all of this and brings the idea of providence, the doctrine of providence, uh, to an applicable uh, point in our lives. It it takes it from kind of the thought world down to the world of uh, our our everyday. Uh, The question says, how does the knowledge of God's providence help us? And the answer is, we can be patient when things go against us. Thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and our, and our loving Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. If, if that does not give you trust and confidence and security, no matter what it is that you are at this point, no matter how much of life doesn't make sense, uh, I don't know what could. To see it, to see God working through Joseph and in Joseph's life, and ultimately to see God working through even the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that faith in that will destroy your fear and give you courage to endure. So let's pray for that. Faith, uh, faith to uh, persevere, courage to endure. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that it was your betrayal, your affliction, uh, 
the, the story of, of your journey uh, being sold, uh, being ultimately uh, murdered at the hands uh, of those who thought they were doing uh, God a favor. It was all of that through which the Father was bringing about good. And Jesus, as we, as we look at your life and we see so many things that did not go well, we hear the echo of Joseph's words in you. God sent me here to preserve a remnant that many should be made alive as they are today. Uh, and so no matter what situations we are facing, we pray that you would grant us faith, faith that we don't have to pay you back because you've made the ultimate payment with your life. And the Father is now pleased to look upon us as a father uh, and do good to us and for us, and we can trust him. Come and work that faith into our lives that we might endure and persevere for your honor and glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, in the worship folder says we'll be having corporate prayer this evening. Uh, we will not be having corporate prayer this evening, so go get a start on your preparation for Turkey Day. Uh, have a great week. Uh, enjoy your children being home. Uh, as you go from here to face whatever it is, uh, whether it is blue skies, cloudy skies, uh, all must work for good to me, as we just sang. Uh, and this is the promise that as you go, God goes with you. Uh, He goes with you, and listen to these words as I say them over you, because it's a promise, uh, and it should be a promise of energy and equipping uh, and building and encouraging your faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.